where are they now, is a question that people ask of stars from yesteryear or sometimes even yesterday. Where did they go? What are they up to? What's going on? How are they getting on in life? And sometimes people who are in the limelight, for whatever reason, stop being in the limelight. And maybe there's something we run across online where we see, oh, here's what they're doing now. Maybe they're doing normal people things instead of starring on stage and screen or the gridiron or playing a leading role in politics. Maybe what they're doing is driving a truck, working for Uber, practicing law, running a small business, working at a coffee shop. Sometimes where, they are, where are they now is surprising. People who were at the top are now doing other things. I think it's worthwhile for us to ask, where is he now when it comes to Jesus? What is he doing now? Last week we celebrated Easter and the miracle of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's a miracle we celebrate not just on Easter, but every Sunday. We love and get excited about the resurrection for good reason. But it's easy to forget that the resurrection is not the end of the story. Something else happened. Something else went down. And we forget where he is now. He's in heaven. We know this because we read this in a couple different places. One of those is in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, says, and, he that's, and when he had said these things, that's Jesus, as they were looking on, those are the disciples, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so we know he's in heaven, but what is he doing? Where is he now? What's going on? Heaven's probably a big place. What is he doing? He's seated. He's sitting down. And it's incredibly important that he is sitting down. Him taking a seat means that some of his tasks are done. It also means that others are ongoing. But it definitely means that we as Christians who follow Jesus today must take great comfort in the fact that our Savior King is seated in heaven. In this series we've entitled Christ Preeminent, we've seen and noted that Jesus is preeminent in everything He's done. In His coming, in His living, in His dying, in His rising, and today we see in His sitting. See, today we're going to be able to see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that we have great reason as Christians to take heart. No matter what we're facing, no matter what we've done, no matter where we're going, no matter how we've blown it, we can take heart because our Savior is seated on the throne. We will see that He is our forever. He is that one and only forever sacrifice for sin and He's seated with no more work to do. We're going to see that He has, because He's seated on the throne, all authority over all things in the universe. We're going to see that because He's seated, He is and always He is today and will always be our representative. So, 
we can take heart that our Savior King is seated. Let's explore this topic of his seating, being seated, which is called the session of Christ in verses 1 through 3. If you have a Bible, look into the book of Hebrews, which is after Philemon, before James. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1, chapter 1, and then just go down to verse 3. God's Word says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the, exact, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful that you're seated. We're grateful that you're not busy doing priestly work to atone for our sins. That's done. We're grateful that you're not running around in a war room or a situation room trying to handle all the chaos of the world. No, you're in control. And we're grateful, Lord, that one day we will be where you are. And so, Lord, I pray for something I cannot accomplish. I pray that your power would be let loose on all of us by the power of your Spirit and the preaching of your Word. Lord, I pray that you would comfort the saints gathered here today and comfort the saints who watch today, that they might be able to take great comfort in the fact that Jesus isn't here, that he's seated. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. We can take heart. We're going to see three reasons we can take heart this morning that our Savior King, Jesus Christ, is seated. First, what's the first reason he's seated? Jesus has already made purification. He's already made purification. We can see this in verse 3. We see, after making purification for sins, he sat down. Purification is a common Old Testament word and theme. And the writer to the Hebrews wants to begin the book from the jump by telling people that Jesus is doing a priestly work. Purification for sins is what priests did in the Old Testament. The writer wants us to understand that Jesus is a new kind of priest. Now, what did the priests do in the Old Testament? I'll give you a sampling. In Leviticus, if you read Leviticus 4, 5, and 6, and I'll give you a warning, it's kind of boring, but if you do, you will see a refrain if anyone sins, if anyone sins, and here's what to do. I'll give you an example. Leviticus 4, verses 27 through 31, we read, If any one of the common people, that's us, sin unintentionally in doing any of the things that, the Lord command, that, that by the Lord, Lord's commandments ought not be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat a female without blemish, 
for his sin, which he had committed, and shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. Whoo! That's quite a process for forgiveness. Gracious. You sin unintentionally, you find out you did something wrong. Well, there goes one of the female goats. It's been nice knowing you. I've got to take you to the priest, and he's got to slit your throat. I am glad that I don't keep goats, and I'm glad even more that goats are not my substitute for my sin. They're not called to pay for my sins. Because if they were, I would go from having a number of goats to not having very many at all. I would say, okay, goats, watch out. I need to make sure that, I mean, you guys are in trouble. You guys are in trouble. Not only do you have creepy eyes, but you are in trouble because I am going to, I am going to, sin and I'm going to have to take you to the priest and he's going to kill you and he's going to take your blood and make a big mess out of it. So you see the problem. The problem is people had to bring all these animals to the temple or the tabernacle depending on the time frame and because people were forever sinning and the priests were going, the people were going to the priest with the animals so that they could be killed, so those animals might be killed instead of them. And the priests were working like dogs day in and day out. Actually, they're working harder than dogs. Unless I'm wrong, dogs don't work, at least in my house. They just cause trouble and sleep. But the priests are working harder than dogs, constantly moving, constantly killing, constantly pouring, constantly doing the work so that the people of God might be forgiven. It is and was, or it was, it's not is, it was the ultimate in job security because people were constantly sinning. There was no break. It wasn't like the priest got a break every hour to have some coffee. There was no lounge for them to go to and kick their feet up. They were constantly on their feet, constantly working, constantly. In fact, if you look into the Old Testament and find the description of the tabernacle and the temple, you will not find ever in any place a description of where the chairs go or the sofa or the love seat because there are no chairs or sofas or love seats in the temple or tabernacle. Why? Because there was no time to sit down. Why? Because the people were always sinning. Why? Because they were always bringing animals. Now, earlier I said Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews wants us to see Jesus as a priest. He's a different kind of priest. Why? Because he's sitting down. Hebrews 10.11 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And that's the problem. No goat and its blood could ever permanently take away the sins of any person. And the the priest's work is never done. There's always other sacrifices necessary. The priest never sat down. But Jesus can sit down. One writer says, after his, that's Jesus, after his sacrifice was offered in his death, 
and accepted in his resurrection, he did what no other priest serving in the tabernacle or the temple had ever done before. He pulled up a chair and sat down. So do you see why we should take heart that our Savior King is still seated? Do, we see, do you see this now? Do you see this? What, what does this mean? It means that the work, the sacrifice for sins that we have committed is completely done both now and forevermore. Jesus does not have to stand up. Even when you commit a sin, and we all continue to sin, when we, con- when we continue to sin, Jesus, it's not so serious that Jesus has to stand up to deal with that. Yell at the kids, all right, I've got to stand up because we've got to go kill a goat. No. We see in heaven, Jesus seated. Nothing but repentance is required of us because the blood of Jesus was demanded for our sins. See, it's not that our sins aren't serious. They are. But the punishment for those sins was taken out on Christ. His blood was spilled so that we might be forgiven. Sometimes I think we as Christians, if you're a Christian, you want to make yourself feel better by dwelling on things from the past that you did as a way of self-atonement. But it's not necessary. See, we need to take heart. If you follow Jesus, you are fully and freely forgiven. There is no need to internally beat yourself up. Jesus has already been beaten for your sin. There's no need for you to hate yourself. Jesus was already hated for your sin. There is no need for you to heap piles and piles of guilt and scorn upon yourself because Jesus was treated as you deserved. He was scorned for your sin. There was, there's no need for you to, to berate yourself to feel better because Jesus was berated for your sin. There's no reason for you to sort of metaphorically kill yourself or wish you were dead. Why? Because Jesus was killed for your sin. And we know that when it comes to our sin, there is no sacrifice left for us. There's no animals that we need to bring. Jesus has done it all. See, we can take great heart that he's sitting down. We can take great comfort that he's sitting down. There's nothing left for him to do with our sin. He's paid it. He's paid the price. There's no sacrifice left. And there's no reason to stand up. That's one reason he's seated. Another reason that he's seated, and another reason that we can take heart, is that he is seated. He, he, Jesus has all authority. Now, he didn't just sit in any old chair. It wasn't like Michael said, listen, in heaven we don't really have a lot of furniture. Let me go get a folding chair. Let's put it right here. You've been through a lot. You died and rose from the dead. I'm sure that takes a lot of calories. You go ahead and sit here and uh, have a seat. Let's, let's get on with the show. But that's not what happened. What we see in verse 3 is this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand. That is the place of ultimate honor. And so what we have here is the writer to the Hebrews picking up a biblical understanding and a bib- the biblical theme where Jesus has been seated at the place of of highest honor. He has been seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. As we said last week, he is the one who is actively and lovingly 
controlling all things. Now, how did he get there? Hebrews 1 just says that's where he is. Centuries before, Daniel saw a vision that turned out to be the Son, the Son, Jesus Christ's coronation, and his, the, the, the program where he came and he sat down, the celebration in heaven. Daniel 7, 13 says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Son of man just means one who looked like a man. Jesus is a man. So now, one of the things that's interesting is in this time frame, in Daniel's time, there were all kinds of different false gods, idols, that were depicted riding the clouds. They would ride the clouds to show uh, their power and their strength and their transcendence above all things. But Jesus is the cloud rider. We saw, remember, in Acts chapter 1, he goes up on the clouds. Daniel picks up the story and says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, that's Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So not only is Jesus seated because there is no sacrifice for sin left, but also he's seated ruling as one who has all authority. He is the priest king. He's sitting in control, waiting. He's waiting. 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 What's he waiting for? Psalm 110 tells us the Lord, which is the most common psalm in the quoted in the New Testament. Here's what he's waiting for. The Lord, that's the Father, says to my Lord, that's the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, what is a footstool? Well, we know like an ottoman, if you sit down after a long day, you put your feet out on an ottoman just so that the blood can maybe flow a little bit easier. Um, You never ask a family member to be your ottoman. That would be disrespectful. We know that instinctively. Maybe your dog can be your ottoman, but you would never ask someone to bend over on all fours so that you can put your feet on top of them. If you do, we'll have ministry afterwards and church discipline in the coming weeks. But we have here a picture that's completely different. Just kidding about church discipline. That's a joke um, that apparently wasn't very funny. But in the ancient Mesopotamian pictures and sculptures, there is a, there's a depiction where a conquering king is seen to be grandly holding court with his foot on the neck or the head of his defeated, humiliated foe. In other words, the opposing power is so thoroughly defeated that the king could decide, I want you to be under my feet. Here's a picture of that sort of depiction. This is very common in that day. So you see this guy, that guy with his head down and the the gentleman's foot on his back, that's not where you want to be. He's been defeated and he's been crushed. Now, how does that relate to Jesus? Well, one day, Jesus will crush all of his enemies under his feet. Every enemy of Jesus Christ will be forcefully and thoroughly 
destroyed. It's a picture, a picture of complete destruction. See, the reason he's waiting is because he's gracious. He's kind. He's merciful. Because if he came back today, everybody who is his enemy would be thoroughly destroyed and they would be made his footstool. He, they would be under his feet. It's another way of saying he will one day grind his, feet, grind his enemies into powder. He's waiting right now until then. Anyone who does not willingly submit to this Savior King is his enemy and will be destroyed. His enemy is is any that serve anyone else except Jesus. Most of the time, all the time, really, what we're doing is serving ourselves if we're not serving Jesus. It's not just enough to do good things for Jesus. You must love him with a transformed heart. It's not just enough to say you love him. You must have have actions in keep fruit in keeping with repentance to show that you are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't love him and serve him, you're not acknowledging his authority. If you don't put your faith in him, you're not acknowledging his authority. And it's not like that's just okay. He defeats his enemies in the end and will make them his footstool. So are you his enemy? Are you here? aware that you're not following him, he is your enemy. And I'll tell you what, there's some people you want to make enemies with and some people you don't. Now, he is somebody, Jesus, Jesus is not somebody you want to make an enemy of. Why? Because he died and rose again. If he can do that, chances are he can beat you. Chances are he can take you down. And that's the reality. Some of us think that we can go through our lives by ourselves, by our own strength, by our own self-sufficiency, thinking that we're up to the task and we're doing okay and we don't need him. Well, actually, you do. If you try to live on your own, by yourself, self-sufficiently, you will one day be crushed under his feet. I say that not because I take any glee of, with saying that. I, ta- I say that because that's what the Scriptures tell us. Anyone who doesn't follow him is his enemy. You can turn to him and trust him and not only not be his enemy, be his friend. And not only not just be his friend, but be called a son or daughter of God. This also should, this also should give us comfort as well as Christians. Anyone who hates us because we're Christians, because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ, will one day be destroyed. Even though it seems like they get away with everything and they get to set the narrative and they get to do, appearingly, it seems like whatever they want, however they want, whenever they want, and they refuse to repent and they, they're, they're proud and they're arrogant and they're high and lifted up. One day, all that array themselves against Jesus and his people will be made a footstool. All the wrongs will be made right. All of them. Jesus is king of a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. Are you in his kingdom? If you are, friends, we don't have to exact revenge on our enemies. He will. And he'll do it with precision, and he'll do it beyond what we could ever do. 
So we can take heart. He is seated. No longer is there any sacrifice for sins left or necessary. Also, we see He has authority and He is ruling right now. And lastly, we see here's another reason we can take heart in His session, in His seated position. Jesus is always representing us. And He's representing us now in heaven. How many humans with a body, are in heaven right now? I'll give you a hint. It's one. That wasn't a hint. I told you the answer, actually. There's one. Only Jesus is in heaven in human form right now. He's the only one. He is actively representing all Christians for all times. He's representing us. You see this verse 1, Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us and continues to speak to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The Father has spoken and continues to speak through his Son. The message of reconciliation and forgiveness has been echoing forth from the empty tomb now for centuries, where at one time... The way to God was barred and shut to humans. Now it's open. And it's been opened by a human, by the sacrifice, by a man, by the blood sacrifice of God the Son. And now he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And you might say, that's great. I'm glad Jesus is high and exalted. It sounds great that he's the heir of all things. I don't even know what that means. But how are we to take heart in this Savior King's representation? How? Ephesians 2 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly Places in Christ Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose for us. Not only that, we rose with him. There's a reality there. When Jesus ascended to the Father to be seated at the right hand of the Father, we are now represented by him. And it is possible and real to say in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are seated with him even now. Why? Because we are in Christ. Did you know that that is the most common way that Christians are described in the New Testament? It's not as Christians. It's not as believers. It's not as disciples. It's not as followers. It's not as Christ followers. It's nothing else like that. The, the most common way Christians are described is with the two Little words, in Christ. So, because Christ has died, you have died to your sins, Christian. Because Christ has been raised, you have been raised. Because Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father, there is the reality that you are now represented by a man, by a person, by someone of your race 
seated at the right hand of the Father. No angel in heaven has access to God like this. No angel in heaven has access to God like us. We are now, because of Jesus, seated with Him in the heavenly places. Now, let me just tell you, does it feel like you've been seated? You're seated in the heavenly places right now? Heck no. Man, you know what it feels like? I feel like getting hit by, like every morning when I wake up, it's like I got hit by a truck or a bus or a self-driving car. And so I wake up in the morning, I hit snooze, and I don't feel like I'm hit it. I'm seated in the heavenly realms. I think I, I feel like I have a headache and I need one or seven cups of coffee. But we have been raised with him and we are now seated with him in heaven. And we need to recognize that. It's important for us to look away from what we feel, to look away from how things seem, to look away from what things are like, to look and see the way things really are. And what's real? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what's real. That's what's true. That's why we need to look away from how we feel and look to Him seated high above all things. You're not going to feel like you're seated with Him in the heavenly places when the news of your rent goes up again. You're not going to feel like you're seated with Him in the heavenly places when your baby refuses to sleep. You're not going to feel like you're seated with Him in the heavenly places when you can't sleep and you're losing your grip on reality. You're not going to feel like you're seated in the heavenly places when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of chemo. You're not going to feel like you're seated in the heavenly places when you are so busy you can't think. You're not going to feel like you're seated in the heavenly places when you get the news that you're laid off. You're not going to feel like you're seated in the heavenly places when you, when you have to fight just to keep your mind out of the gutter. You're not going to feel like you're seated in the heavenly places when you're an empty nester and you don't know what to do with your life. But what's determinative for us is not how we feel, but where Jesus is. And he, friends, is at the right hand of the Father on high. And we, We are there with him because we are in Christ. So how sure, how sure is it that we will one day be with him? So sure, so sure that Paul can say, you are even now seated with him in the heavenly places. If you're in Christ, if he is yours and you are his, that representation is to the uttermost and forever. He's seated, and he's seated with you and for you. See, when we hear Jesus died for our sins, we hear that and we can think, okay, well, he, now we can know we are dead to our sins. When we hear that he's been risen from the dead, we can know that we've been brought from death to new life. When we hear that he was, has been ascend, he's ascended to heaven, we can know that we, are, we have been raised with him. When we hear that he has been seated in heaven, we can know that we are seated with him as well. Jesus is our trailblazer. He has opened a way for humans, for men and women and boys and girls to follow. To follow. He has busted a hole through death. He has 
declawed death so that when we physically die, we need not spiritually die. And we can safely pass from this life to the next. Why? Because our representative is seated with him with, in heaven right now. So do you see why it matters that Jesus rose and ascended to be seated at the right hand of God on high? We are now permanently united to him now and forever. We have reason to take heart. There is no more sacrifice for sin necessary. No penance. No self-flagellation. No self-hatred necessary. Why? Because Jesus is seated and that work is done. We don't have to feel the pressure to control all the things in our lives and make sure everything is just so. Not that we shouldn't plan, not that we shouldn't take responsibility, but He's in control. He has all authority. And He will one day put all of our enemies that don't like us or hate us because we're Christians under His feet. And we can take heart that we are now represented, not in heaven, by our Savior. It's not just that he's in heaven with a placard that says, don't forget the humans. He is a human. He is a man seated next to the Father at the right hand. And he's the only one. Soon, there'll be a bunch. There'll be a bunch of us up there with skin and eyes and hair, just like him. See, I hope you're seeing, as we talk through this Christ preeminent series, our call is to look away, to, to make the, be disciplined to look away from ourselves. Look away from our fledgling faith. Look away from our weak constitutions. Look away from our countless temptations. Look away from those weighty trials. Look away from those pesky sin patterns. Look away from our fears. Look away from all the challenges and trials and heartache and regret. And look to Jesus. And if you're thinking, man, all this guy does is talk about looking to Jesus. He sounds like a broken record. If that's what you think, you're starting to get it. Because that's the way the New Testament is. The New Testament never asks us to examine how much faith we have, but who our faith is in. And we can see that our Savior is seated on the right hand of the Father for us. We can take heart. We must take heart. Jesus, the conqueror, has triumphed. Jesus, the king, has triumphed. Jesus, the representative, has triumphed. And we must, we must take heart from his seated position. We can look away from our remaining sin and see our Savior seated. We can look away from our angst over politics and see our Savior seated. We can look away from the fear of tomorrow and see our Savior seated. We can look away from our dreams and plans and see our Savior seated. We can look away from our confused identity and see our Savior seated. We can look away from our skills and reputation and see our Savior seated. We can look away from our weaknesses and fears and see our Savior seated. We can look away from our confidence and self-sufficiency and see our Savior 
seated and take heart. Friends, if he wasn't there, we'd be in trouble. If he wasn't at the right hand, we'd be in big trouble, but he is. So we can take heart. May we take heart. I can invite you. I'm going to pray for those who are maybe feeling a bit overwhelmed with life and getting pounded around here in just a second. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that the situation changes, but I'm also going to pray that you would have eyes to look to you. One of the, look to the Lord. One of the reasons we go through hard things is so that we look, our, we look away from ourselves and look to him. That's one of the reasons. Not the only reason. And it doesn't describe all the reasons that we go through trials. But when we go through trials, we recognize, man, I can't do this. I need help. Where do we look? To the one seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's go to him now. Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning. I pray that you would help us all to have eyes to look to you, Jesus. Lord, we're tempted to look at all the different things around us in this world. We're tempted to put faith and trust and hope in all kinds of different things. And Lord, we want to be a people who puts our faith and trust in the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Lord, I pray particularly for people here who are struggling, Lord, who are facing trials and hardships, who maybe don't even, are facing something tomorrow or the next day or this week that they don't even know how to process, Lord. And it looms so large on their, in their mind, Lord. I pray that you would help them to look away from those situations and look to you. I pray that they would take comfort in the fact that you're in control, seated in control, orchestrating all things for your good, orchestrating all things for our good, orchestrating all things to to, to advance your kingdom. And so, Lord, please bless us in that way. I also pray for those who are more aware of their sin in this room, those who are Christians, Lord, who are more aware of their sin than your victory over their sin. That's dangerous, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help them to recognize your victory over their sin is something you won for them. And while we fight, and while we ask forgiveness, and while we pursue the Lord, oh Lord, I pray we would have eyes to see you as high and lifted up as the one who has defeated our sin without defeating us. Jesus, I pray that you would meet everyone in whatever kind of trial and circumstance they face this morning. I also pray for any who are here or watching who don't know you, Lord. I can't flip lights on in the hearts of any person anywhere, Lord. But I pray by your Spirit, Lord, you would help people who are enemies of you recognize that there is no hope in that. So, Lord, I pray that you would give them the gift of conviction so that they might recognize what they've done and how they've done wrong and turn to you, and see you seated at the right hand, high and lifted up, seated at the right hand of majesty on high. Jesus, it's in your name 
and the one who is seated at the right hand. It's in your name we pray. Amen.